there's three kinds of Zen monks. There's the kind who spread the Dharma, they put the teachings out. There's the type of monk who protects the Dharma. And there's the third kind, which is the dirty, filthy, stinking old rice bag. I'm hoping very much that John becomes a dirty, filthy, stinking old rice bag. <laughs> we were talking about this with Shimano, Tony and I. We brought this issue of Sasaki's protecting the Dharma. What the hell does the Dharma need protection from? There was a time when I was corresponding with Cardinal Ratzinger before he became the Pope. And it was about the issue where he had said, now that communism is dead, the next great threat to the church is Buddhism. So I started some correspondence about this issue. And I finally got to the point where I said, Buddhism isn't out to defeat the church. That's not the intent. It's a nice church. Leave it alone. But let's make believe, let's say that perhaps there's a brigade of Banco Buddhist monks who want to overthrow the church. And here they go. They're going to overthrow the church. In saying that that possibility exists, that he's afraid that these crazy Buddhists are going to overthrow the church, he's saying that the teachings of Christ aren't very strong. But they are. They couldn't have lasted for 2,000 years if they were weak. Hmm? So the Pope can rest in peace. The teachings of Christ are sufficiently strong to overcome a brigade of Banco Buddhist monks which lets us move forward. We don't have to practice Zen, or we don't have to live life with a great deal of fear. It's not required. There's a grand and glorious difference between faith and trust. Faith is very intellectual. Trust is empirical. Now we'll get into the heart of today's lecture. We're back to this book by Trungpa Rinpoche, The Truth About Suffering. Would you like to know the truth about suffering? It sucks. That's the truth. But it can be used. Even though suffering is annoying, it can be used. Hmm? Sometimes when you sit, you find a lot of pain in your knee. Very, very difficult. That becomes the object of your meditation. Hmm? You're not thinking about compassion or God or love or anything. You're thinking about my knee. Oh, my knee. Oh. And you get focused. It keeps you focused. So it has some advantage. It will keep you focused. And if you stay with it and look into it, you'll see that it disappears. Many of you already had that experience. You're sitting. you got a lot of pain. It's annoying. You don't like it, and all of a sudden it just disappears. What is that? Well, it shows you how unsubstantial it is. Yes? 
Understanding suffering is very important. The practice of meditation is not necessarily designed exclusively to develop pressure, but to understand the truth of suffering. And in order to understand the truth of suffering, one also has to understand the truth of awareness. When true awareness takes place, suffering does not exist. So this thing we talked about, you have this pain, and all of a sudden it disappeared. Something shifted. Through awareness, suffering is somewhat changed in its perspective. It is not necessarily that you do not suffer, but the haunting quality that fundamentally you are in trouble, that you've done something wrong and you need to be punished, evaporates. It is like removing a splinter. It might hurt and you might still feel some pain, but the basic cause of that pain the ego has been removed. Now, if I was very smart, I would stop there. <laughs> but I'm not all that smart, so we'll go a little further with this. Yes? We'll go back up from empirical up into intellectual. Yes. Life has suffering, if you haven't noticed. Yes. What we want is a cure. What's being suggested is that before you go looking for the cure, understand the root cause of the suffering. Hmm? Egotistical self-centeredness. So we sit and we deal with the first part of the Four Noble Truths. Life has suffering. So the suggestion is then to sit. And when you're sitting, what you'll find is the mind gets very active. And there's two possibilities now about that. You can either get involved with koan practice or you can just sit, just do shikantaza. The reason for doing these things is to observe the activity of your own mind. There's the roots of our problem. So let's go a little further. Zen has moved here from the Orient. A lot of it comes from Japan. A lot of difficulty arose in the need to separate between the cultural aspect of the teachings and the empirical aspect of the teachings. Japan is a very... Motherly? Motherly? very controlled. You don't see a lot of expressions of affection 
or warmth. Layers of tradition. Layers of tradition. A lot of stuff comes from the samurai culture. So that became a little bit of a problem. You folks are second generation. I'm first generation. A lot of what I had to do was sort out the cultural from the essential. Mm -hmm. uh, this is dealing with that particular situation. The last set pattern is a very familiar group. Passion, aggression, and ignorance. Passion or lust, and we say lust, we're not just talking about sex. And lust after fame and fortune and food and a lot of things. Passion or lust, strangely enough, has a very interesting psychological back and forth play with aggression. That is, the problem of passion comes from it's not being pure and complete passion, which would simply be straightforward and true. Well, there's the heart of a lot of this practice, the difficulty people are getting caught in. We come here. We get into this posture and we sit still. And if we get tricked, we think the idea is to become almost non-existent, to be empty of passion. And that's so erroneous, I don't know how far to go with trying to describe the fact that it is not empty of passion. It is empty of passion that is riddled and saturated with ego. If you practice Zen, you'll become very passionate. That's why there is this constant theme of how do you manifest. I never ask you, how do you sit there and look like a marshmallow? <laughs> how do you become a wimp? How do you become blah? Huh? There's enough of that already, if you haven't noticed. Hmm? So how do you manifest your Buddha nature? Buddha nature is extremely alive, extremely creative, and has passion in it, but it's passion free of ego. Yes? Yes. You're supposed to say yes, right? Yes, yes right. Thank you. Sentient beings are primarily all Buddhas. So everyone here has that nature. Hmm? Two weeks ago we had a ceremony for that guy and that guy. I want him to be a dirty, stinking old rice bag so much. And we had lilies. And they were all so nice. Yes? Where are they? They were all gone. And I was equating us with lilies. Yes? He have this bulb that's down on the ground during the winter and it's just sitting there, kind of humming. <laughs> and it's waiting for the sun and the warmth and the rain to loosen things up so it can start to bloom. Yes? 
come up, come out, you see little sprouts and they start to grow and we're seeing this now very much. The azaleas in front of my house are starting to bloom fully. And then it comes out and it fully opens up and it blooms completely. And then what happens? So there is in us a little bit of fear of blooming completely because we have the thought of looking at that lily and look what happens to the lily. So if we can hold back and not fully bloom, we'll stay around longer. Well, that's an erroneous idea. Yes? Yes, sir. <laughs> now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. This is not a spectator sport. We're having intercourse. Is it good for you? So now this thing has bloomed and it's going to die. So I better hold back and I not, better not fully bloom. I better keep some part in reservation so that there's just a semi-bloom. I'll show you a little bit of who I am. I'll giggle at your jokes. And, but I won't step out wholeheartedly. Because that involves that uh -uh, scary position. So what's going to happen? I'll stay in reservation, and that'll keep me safe. And I'll be able to move all the way along, and then, oh my goodness. There it is. The thing I'm trying to avoid by staying in reservation is right there. Old age, sickness, and death. Can't get away from it. It's a given. Now, if you're mishearing this, that becomes depressing. Oy vey, there it is. If you're hearing this correctly, without any egotistical layers, this should be the motivation to step out wholeheartedly, to allow that Buddha nature that has real passion in it to manifest. Why would you want to keep that in abeyance? maintain an illusion of control. To maintain an illusion of control. In Japan, saving face is a very important issue. It's part of the culture. Which, of course, talks about ego. So now we can talk about the face of ego. Ego has a face. F-A-C-E. Fear, anger, control, and entitlement. He had a very interesting insight this week about that issue. What was that? He keeps slipping away, entitled to help me. She thinks she's entitled to my help. I actually don't care. I'm only being nice because the camera's on. <laughs> <laughs> I would have really gone off if it wasn't. He's talking about he has this illusion that he's entitled to a fair life. That was it. He's entitled to people treating him nicely. He's entitled to driving down the road without anybody. All sorts of entitlement. Truth, justice, in the American way. It's an illusion, folks. But we have that. Hmm? Isn't it like a bargain we make? Or like it's a bargain I make sometimes. If I'm nice to you, you'll be nice to me. If I treat you according to, you know, the truth, justice, and American way, then you will treat me that way. And, you know, even 
Yes, yes. Does, that, does that hold true? Well, no. Say no, Rick. <laughs> no, Rick. <laughs> if I go on a date and I take you out to the movies and I take you to supper, no guarantee. No guarantee. <laughs> If I drive down the road and I'm obeying the traffic laws and I'm staying in lane, I'm signaling, I'm doing all the right things, does that mean nobody will crash into me? No, Rick. So there's a whole game that we've structured that's built on illusion. And there's no guarantee that you don't ring the doorbell for your date and the person pulls you inside rips your clothes off, too. No guarantee. No guarantee. There used to be a, a monk here, Christopher Gulhuli. He would come to my house for breakfast every day and we'd talk about a lot of things. And he would keep emphasizing the fact, Rick, there's no guarantee. And I'd say, of course I agree with you, Christopher. There is no guarantee. There's no guarantee that you'll win the lottery. And there's no guarantee that you won't win the lottery. It's wide open and spacious. And we talk about moving from the intellectual to the empirical. We're talking about entering into that vast, wide open, spacious, creative, passionate, alive, vibrant situation. And every one of us has this duality where we hear that and it's very attractive and we get near it and we run away. And we're playing this game. That's what's going on. Hmm? Ego hears it, sounds attractive, moves towards it, and recognizes it that that's its demise. So it turns around and runs back home. Hmm? Now there's a point where you can't run back home anymore. Everyone here is a stream enterer. You're involved with the practice to some degree. And you move along, and there's a point where you run away. And then you return. And it's described in the literature as a one-shot deal, but you do it many times. You're practicing, you're taking an interest, and you fall away. And you come back, and you practice, and get some more interest, and fall away. Until you get to that outer edge, where you cross over. And at that point, there's no turning back. You can't. You're over there. It's finished. It's done. Well, he talked about this position where you've pulled a splinter out of your finger. That work of taking the splinter out hurts, and there's still some pain, but the thing that causes suffering has been removed. The root of ego. Oddly enough, there's two schools of Zen, Rinzai and Soto. We incorporate both of them here. But Rinzai is very focused on common practice. Very vigorous. <laughs> Soto is more laid back. They focus on shikantaza, just sitting. I don't think we should get trapped in either one. 
Steve used to be here, came in and he started working with Cohen's, and he just got too intense. He was drilling holes in the floor. So I had to take him away from it. But there's people that come in and they're so laid back and blah, you got to get them cooking. Mm -hmm. I always prefer trying to cool somebody off rather than trying to bring them up. So we have this great Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. They're exquisite. And you'll keep finding that every time you argue with it, you wrestle and you wrestle and you wrestle and you come back to it and you see, my goodness, there's a validity here. There's something valid about these teachings. It's not a lot of nonsense. And the teachings aren't asked, you aren't asked to engage in this in what's called blind faith. Actually, they're asked to look at it fully, not just accept it because it's been written in a book. Don't accept it until you have an empirical, direct, wholehearted experience. Yes? Move from the intellectual grasp of the teachings to the empirical. When you fully grasp these teachings, you don't need them anymore. When you take the bus from New York to California, once you're in California, you don't need the bus. You no longer need the teachings because you become the teachings. Yes? Every one of you is a teacher. That's a given. What you have to look at is, what are you teaching? There's where it gets very intriguing, yes? What are you teaching? It's good to stay true to the empirical aspect. That's what he means when he says he's protecting the Dharma, that it don't get corrupted. But technically speaking, if we get down to the empirical aspect, it can never be corrupted. This part can never be corrupted. Can't be. The sun can't be turned into the moon. I've never seen an azalea get confused and try to act like a giraffe. There's certain things that are going to be as they are without any problem. Now, human beings, that's another thing. Now we got a problem. <laughs> They're going to try and be everything but what they are. Yes? And the teachings are constantly guiding us back to that position of manifesting our true nature. In the American Indian tradition, they have a word, wankantanka. And it's defined basically as the everywhere spirit. Everywhere. Everywhere. Or in Buddhism, they talk about the functioning of the Absolute, or the wisdom body of the Buddha. In Christianity, they talk about the mystical body of Christ. This stuff is inescapable. Now, what do we do with that information? The everywhere spirit between that wall and that wall, it's filled with the everywhere spirit. Shekinah, the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we do with that information? There's the next step. Yes, That's very nice. That's very, very, very nice. Intellectually speaking, that's, oh, that's, isn't that nice? Mm, that's comforting. It's everywhere. 
What's the next step? What do we do about our inescapable relationship with the everywhere spirit? Hmm? First, when we ask ourselves what we are doing with that. What are you doing? <laughs> Fighting it tenaciously. So this is where we get back to the Four Noble Truths and the investigation of the roots of suffering. What's causing this suffering? Hmm? When we talk about suffering, we instantly want to go to the position of cure, right? Life has suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. If we remove desire, we'll bring an end to suffering. You can't go right here. You can't. But you have to look at that first business. Where is the root of this suffering? What is the cause of it? So we have this everywhere spirit that we're constantly in touch with, intimately involved with, but we're creating an illusion of separation. It's there and there and in between, but when it gets here, <laughs> I'm exempt. Yes, I've created a place of non-everywhere spirit. I'm free from it. And there's the root of suffering. There's the root of it. You have to look at that. And not just look at it intellectually, but empirically. You have to have a direct experience of all these teachings. Don't just try to grab them intellectually. That's good. It's very good, very, very good. You get an A in intellectual understanding of the teachings. But that's only this part. You need this part. There's the poem that's very, very beneficial if you apply yourself to it. It's the release of the ego. Creating or breaking down the illusion of separation that we created. We created that illusion and we talk about it in this lifetime. Let's not go into past lifetimes yet. In this lifetime, somewhere along the road, we began to feel threatened. Something was going on that upset our sense of security, whatever it might be. It might be that the light went out, who knows? What could cause a sense of insecurity, yes? So now we create illusions of safety. I will put out this wall, this defense mechanism, to protect myself. Now, as a child, that might be necessary. The problem comes that at 58, we're still using our infantile defense mechanisms to live in the world. At 58, you don't need those defense mechanisms anymore. But we've treasured them. They're beautiful. We put a lot of time, effort, and energy into building these defense mechanisms, this ego structure. And now we're asked to disassemble it. And we don't like that idea because we want a return in our investment. We made a big investment in creating this egotistical separation. And we want to pay back. And there isn't any. You just got to let go. There's something that's very close. It's almost like you have to warn 
mourn it going away. You can't just dump it immediately. It's something That's that why they invented grieving. In relations to identifying suffering, I find one thing in my practice that has constantly been a, a throwing off is thinking I'm not going to get anything out of doing this meditation process. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to come of it. Not identifying that that very feeling is the suffering itself. It's very important to do that first part. Technically speaking, you're not going to get anything. You can't be present at your enlightenment ceremony. You can't be present at your enlightenment ceremony. 